Speaking of gifts, here's John Kim. Let's pray for him. And he's going to um, teach us about parenting, the family of God. Father, thank you for this moment in history. Thank you for our network of friends. Thank you that we are part of this uh, movement. It's not the only movement, obviously, on the earth, but it's one in which you've called us, and we are so grateful for its leadership. Father, we're thankful for John Kim. We're thankful for John and Rebecca and how they lead by example. And Holy Spirit, we now open our eyes and our ears to see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Well, thanks, Neil. No, not a problem. It's great to hear about what God's doing in the, in the broader movement. All right. So as we begin, just wanted to ask you guys a simple question. Um, have you guys ever had just a really good day? Just the type of day that when you think about it, maybe days, weeks, months later, you just can't help but smile. Perhaps it's a day that you thought about that can be perhaps even life-altering. So why don't you take about 15, 20 seconds and think about that day and just turn to your neighbor and just share that day with them. So think about 15, 20 seconds, one, two, three, go now. Just do that. Okay. All right. Well, I hope you guys were able to share and get to know each other a little bit better with your neighbor as we did that. Uh, well, for me, I've had several of those types of days. It all happened. A lot of them happened to be in the month of October. Uh, for instance, in October of 2002 was the month that I met my lovely wife Rebecca. Uh, we were actually in Chicago at the time, and we were there for an overseas, uh, overseas missions prayer meeting. Um, but after I met her, I sort of called an audible, and you could say I had a, a different type of mission. Uh, it was a mission of love. Well, about a year later, on October 11th of 2003, uh, Rebecca and I got married. And, and so you could say that that mission was accomplished. <laughs> now, a few years later, on October 1st of 2006... Um, at, that t- at that day, Rebecca was exactly nine months pregnant, um, and, and it also happened to be her birthday. Well, that day was on a Sunday, and so like typically on every Sunday, we, we drove to church, and before she went into the service, we, we decided to, she decided to go into the ladies' room, and you know, I just kind of st- uh, stood outside the, the sanctuary, just kind of waiting for her to, to, get, to get by. Uh, well, a few minutes later, uh, the pastor's wife came up to me, and um, she looked at me and said, hey, John, congratulations, you're going to be a daddy today. And I thought, well, you know, I thought she meant that figuratively because Rebecca was nine months pregnant and she was kind of ready to burst at any time. And so I thought, oh, thanks, 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 and kind of just disregarded her. But then she turned around and said, no, John, look at me. Rebecca's water just burst in the bathroom. You need to get the car right now. I don't know if you ever had one of those deer-in-the-headlights sort of moments where you just sat there like, what in the world has happened? And in fact, the first thing that I uttered out of my mouth was just, I told her to shut up because I didn't believe her. I later apologized because I felt bad, you know, telling the pastor's wife to shut up. But I, as I stood there for a, minute, for a moment, she actually turned to me and said, John, you need to get the car. And in an instant, just like that, I think something just snapped. And it just had one of those Forrest Gump moments where I just ran straight to the car without thinking about it. I picked, you know, I took the car, went back to the church, picked up Rebecca, and we drove her to the Beverly Hospital. Um, and about 14 hours later... Um, Anna Unhe Kathleen Kim was born on October 2nd at about 2.50 a.m. And about a couple years later after that, 
Uh, it wasn't in October. It was August 31st of 2008. My second daughter, uh, Julia Jinju Ray Kim, was born. And here's a couple of just pictures of them today in case you haven't had a chance to meet them. That was Juliana. <laughs> That's them today. See, those were just both good days. In fact, they were great days. And for those of us who are parents, I'm sure many of us had very similar types of experiences. Uh, it's almost hard to put into words the, the joy of seeing that baby that was growing in the mommy's tummy finally come to fruition, come out, right? Um, but I don't know if you were like me, but after that initial rush of adrenaline, and when I had some of those quiet moments, um, that joy eventually started to turn into to stress. You see, I started to feel the weights of responsibility of what it meant to be a parent. And I started asking myself questions like, you know, how am I going to do this? You know, am I going to be able to provide for our children? Man, what if I'm just an awful parent? Or if I just totally mess this up? And, and what I began to realize is that the day that my daughter Anna was born, see, it wasn't just the birth of a new baby, but it was also the birth of a new mommy and a new daddy as well. See, we were all new to this, and we didn't have an instruction manual. And imagine that many of you might have felt similarly as parents. Right? There are moments where I just felt confused. Uh, I felt inadequate. Um, I knew that I needed help. And so I asked questions like, well, you know, where can I get help? What, 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 do I, what, do I, what, what do I do to become a better parent? And as I looked at the Bible, I, you might be asking yourselves, because what I did is, does the Bible have anything to say about raising children? You know, what does God really want for, well, for us to do as parents? And so to try to answer that, at least part of that question, uh, I invite you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. Um, if you have your uh, Bible, it's probably, it's in the first, it's the fifth book of the Bible, or just look it up on the Bible app. And as you do that, uh, just to give a little bit of context... Uh, Moses had already led the Jews out of Egypt and out of their life of slavery at this time. And because of uh, the Jews' lack of faith and their disobedience, uh, the Jews eventually wandered in the desert for another 40 years until the entire generation had died off. Now, in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, the Jews were set to enter into the promised land with this new generation. But Moses wasn't going to enter into uh, the promised land with them. And so what he wanted to do was remind this next generation of all the things that God had done and to teach them all the ways that the Lord's commands and how to obey them. And so in the previous chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 5, God revealed himself to the Jews. And in fact, God came down and recited the Ten Commandments again. The first time he did it in Exodus 20, but he did it again to this next generation just to make sure that, he underst that they understood the law. And as we come now to Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, 4 to 7, Moses continues to teach his people to hear the word of the Lord, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk to them when you sit at your house, and when you walk on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now in the passage we just read, Moses tells God's people to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, right? And all of your mind, and all of your soul. And the way that we demonstrate our love 
is to follow his commandments, to put them into our hearts. See, but it doesn't stop there because in verse 7, he says that we should also teach these things diligently to our children. And I was just thinking about that, that, that word teach. Um, at first, it was a little bit, I was actually a little bit disappointed. And the reason why I said that is, is because, you know, I, I think of God as, as a God of love, right? You know, I, I surely would have expected the command to say something like, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and then to love your children, not as much as God, but certainly as much as myself. See, but notice that the command here is not to love your children, but it's to train your children or to teach them. You know, train your children. To me, it feels a little bit kind of like a job, doesn't it? It seems it's a little bit of like a chore. It doesn't really seem very fun. In fact, you might even say it doesn't even seem loving at all. And so as I was speculating, thinking about this command, I thought, well, perhaps maybe this is just an anomaly, right? Maybe it's just here in the book of Deuteronomy. And surely the rest of the Bible has more, more commands to, to tell parents to love their children. But as I actually looked yesterday and just did a Bible search, you know, for all the commandments to love your children, in fact, I only saw one reference in the entire Bible. Now, I know there's a lot of Gordon Conwell the theologians and, and Gordon College Bible majors, so if I'm wrong, please correct me. But the only reference I found was in the book of Titus. It was the letter that uh, Paul wrote to Titus where he said, here's uh, older women to teach younger wives to love your husbands and your children. Just really an afterthought. See, but if you search the Bible on training your child or, or disciplining your child, you're going to get a lot more hits. In fact, in the book of Proverbs 22, it says that you should train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, you know, fathers, really parents, really, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Why is that? You know, why doesn't the Bible have so much instruction or commanding his, the parents to love their children? And I think it's because... Um, it's not that God doesn't want us to love our children. In fact, the Bible is filled with images. In fact, Neil mentioned it one of the uh, earlier, where it says the children are considered a gift from God. Right in Psalm 127, it says, "Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord. Right, the fruit of a womb, a reward. And like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quivers from them." Right, so children are a gift from the Lord. But I think the reason why God doesn't command us to love our children is really simply because he doesn't need to. I think it comes naturally to us as parents. It's part of our DNA. I say that because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that we are created in God's image. We bear his likeness in his, in his image. But we also know that God loves his children. It says in 1 John 3, 1, and so because we are in the image of a loving God who loves his children, right, we're also going to naturally love our children as well. However, I think because of sin, God also knows that we're going to love our children imperfectly and we're going to make mistakes. You know, and, and, and if I were to maybe sum up maybe how we make mistakes in our love for our children, I, I think they tend to fall into one or two caps. Either you perhaps love your children too softly or you love your children too hard. Too soft or, or too hard. And so what do I mean by loving our children too softly? 
I mean that when we try to love them, we try to meet every one of their needs. In fact, last night, Rebecca and the kids were driving back from Chicago. Um, and, and on the way in, they, they, the, the kids really wanted to have, you know, chicken pot pie from Crosby's. For some reason, that was like one of their favorite foods. And so, you know, my, my question to them was, you know, how come? Really, it was, how many do you want me to buy? See, I love my children. They ended up actually not getting it because they, they were hungry before we got home. But I was at Crosby's waiting for them to, to buy it before they canceled the order, right? But, see, so, there's, so the, the thing is, is that there's nothing wrong with wanting, to, wanting our kids to be happy. But the problem is, is often we care about their happiness more than their healthiness, isn't it? So we sometimes look at the short-term benefits and affirmation that they, they give us as children more than perhaps the long-term character that we're building into them. So look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. I think this is the reason why God commands his people to teach these things diligently to our children, right? Training and teaching our children, for, for many of us, like myself, is not a natural thing. I'd rather just hang out with them and just play with them and just kind of go to the park and, and do those things and let them do whatever they want and give them everything that they want, right? But training is hard. It's work. I'm thinking of the long term instead of the short term. And so the reason why I think God wants us to train our children is because our goal in parenting is not to make our children happy, but rather it's to make our children wise. Our goal in parenting is not to make our children happy, but it's to make our children wise. So if you truly want to love your children, right, then don't go after short-term happiness, but try to build into them wisdom. Now, at this point, I know some of you might be thinking, you know, wisdom? That doesn't seem like a very spiritual answer, does it? Right? You know, shouldn't we train our children to be spiritual after all? I mean, this is a church. I imagine that's what the Bible would say, wouldn't it? And I would say, yes, absolutely. See, but the model that God is presenting, you know, in this command is so much greater than just spirituality. See, the life God wants for each and every one of our children is so much more than just memorizing Scripture, Right? And hearing from God's voice and to read God's word and to love it, he not only wants us to know and to love God's word and his voice, but he actually wants it to live it out in our lives. He wants our children to actually obey his commands. And in the Bible, that's called wisdom. In the book of Psalms, chapter 110, verse 11, chapter 111, verse 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom, and all who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. Praise him forever. See, so the goal is to not make our children happy, but the goal is to make our children wise. Right? And so the first mistake we make is sometimes we can parent our children a little too soft, but the second mistake is sometimes we can parent our children a little too hard. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we could take this training and this teaching aspect a little too far, or it becomes more like pushing or, or, or prodding. In fact, when I lived in Chicago a few years ago, uh, I remember talking to a lot of parents who, who intentionally held their kids back for a year around the age of kindergarten. But what was interesting is it wasn't because they were struggling academically or because they had any sort of social or behavioral issues. Rather, it was because they wanted to guarantee that their child would be more physically or mentally mature than their peers. So they would have an easier time excelling athletically or academically. 
See, in this town, what I found is that a child born in the month of September was like sort of like winning the lottery because they knew that it guaranteed that their child would be one of the oldest in their class. But, you know, I don't think this is an isolated incident just in Chicago. In fact, you know, as I talk with many friends who have coached little leagues or, or soccer leagues these days, I think you've already seen that there's been more of this professionalization, you know, even in youth leagues today. And today, many parents are doing just about anything, you know, sometimes at any cost, to give their children a bit of an edge. See, in the last few years, there's actually been a sharp increase um, in the rise of private athletic lessons. I don't know if you're aware of that, for the ages of 6 to 18. You know, private lessons used to be just for sports like golf and, and, and tennis. But these days, you're actually seeing private tutors in, in sports like baseball and football and soccer. And in fact, in 2015, if you were to add up all of the coaching sessions and all the youth camps and all the training schools in this country, in the U.S., we're going to spend over $6 billion this year alone, according to Ibis World, who's a market research company. To put that in perspective of the $6 billion figure, that's $2 billion more than the entire city of Boston's operating budget for the schools, for the roads, for the tolls. And so why do parents do that? Some parents today say that it's sort of an investment, right? Hoping that their child will get into one of those, get one of those rare athletic scholarships that only about 2% of high school athletes received in this country. You know, ultimately it's the parents that want to give their kids just a little bit of an edge in this overly competitive world. But, you know, it's not also in the world of athletics alone, but it's also in the world of academics. Uh, as, as some of you might know, in, in January 2011, the uh, Wall Street Journal posted an article. It was titled, Why Chinese Mothers Are Superior. It was written by an author by the name of Amy Chue, which contained excerpts from her book, The Battle Hymn of a Tiger Mom. She, she writes that part of the reason why she was able to raise successful kids was that she had a list of things that her two daughters were never able to do. Right? They were never able to attend a sleepover. They were never able to watch TV or play computer games. Right? They were never allowed to get a grade lower than an A. They were never allowed to be less than number one in their class. They were not allowed to quit playing piano or violin. See, many of you would expect she got a lot of backlash for this, right? There are tons of articles and, and, and commentaries written about just, you know, lambasting her, saying, whoa, this is awful. Why would you put all this pressure on her kids, right? And to her defense, she, she wrote that this was never meant to be a how-to book. It was really meant to just be a memoir. And eventually, you'll start to see the, some of the progression that she's made and how she adapted to her, um, to, you know, to life here in America. But yet, despite these criticisms... That didn't stop this book from becoming a runaway New York Times bestseller list. And in fact, the book was translated into 30 different languages, and it became a bestseller in seven other countries as well. See, even if people publicly don't want to admit it, privately, parents often will do anything it costs to give their, their kids an edge to succeed. And I say that, please don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting that kids shouldn't strive for excellence in whatever they do. In fact, I think kids should try to be excellent and strive to do their best in every endeavor that they do. But I think sometimes there's a fine line between training your, chi your children and provoking them or pushing them too hard. 
right? Pushing and provoking your children has a problem, had been a problem also in biblical times as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Colossians, you know, fathers, but really all parents, you know, do not provoke or exasperate your children, lest they be discouraged. And parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. See, what Paul is saying is that all this pushing and all this prodding and all this provoking doesn't always have the, um, your intended consequences, and sometimes it could backfire on you. And so if I had to summarize Paul's command, you know, I believe what Paul is saying is that our goal of parenting is not to make yourself happy as a parent through your children, but it's to help your children become wise. And sometimes you have to check our motivations. Is the reason why you're pushing your, parent, your children is to ultimately make yourself happy? Or is it really in their long-term interests? And so we know that our, our goal of parents is not to make our kids happy or to make ourselves happy as parents through them, but it's to make them wise. And I know that many of you are probably sitting in this room wondering and thinking, because you guys are not parents, if this has any application to you at all. Right? I know there's a lot of singles here. Uh, one of the things I want to do is point out in verse 4, that notice, that, Moses, that notice who Moses is addressing in this particular passage. You know, he says, he doesn't say the words, hear, O parents, right? Rather, he says, hear, O Israel. In fact, this teaching was done to all of the parents, or all of the, all of the people, not just the parents, right? He was, he was calling the entire community with them in this command, Right? Moses was talking to not just the parents, but their aunts and their uncles and their grandfathers and grandmothers, you know, their friends. He was talking with their entire community. That this is meant to be a community affair. You know, a few years ago, the Fuller Theological Seminary actually did a long-term faith study of teenagers. Um, and it resulted in a book. It was written by uh, Carol Powell and, Ka- and Clark and Chap Clark. Um, it was called Sticky Faith. Everyday ideas to build lasting faith in your kids. Now, in their study, one of the things they did is they talked to hundreds of Christ followers as they were in youth group and followed them all the way to the end of college. But one of the sad discoveries they found is that over 60% of students who regularly attended youth group fell away from the faith after college. And in fact, most never returned. 60%. But what they did, instead of getting depressed, is they actually talked to those 40% that did come back. And they started to ask, what were some of those factors that allowed these students to be different from their peers? Why didn't this group fall away like the rest? And one of the things that they discovered, I'm not saying this is a silver bullet, but one of the things that they discovered is that those kids that stayed in the faith after high school tended to have five or more adult relationships outside of their parents that invested in them during their time in church as they're growing up. Five or more adults. See, in other words, when you have more adults investing your children in the church, there's a higher likelihood that their faith will stick. See, it's no longer something that's just a faith of their parents, that the parents force them to do you know, as they're growing up, but they're seeing Jesus work in their lives as well as the lives of their friends, the lives of other people, and the lives of other adults. You know, and as a parent of this church, that's actually one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for the other adults that invest in our children's lives, you know, each and every week. You know, whether it be at the, you know, at Compass or uh, even in our faith group, you know, those, those relationships actually matter and could have a long-term impact. 
right? Because raising our kids in the Lord was always meant to be a community journey. It was never meant to be an individual family event. And so what does this look like? You know, what does this look like day to day? I know that many of us are super busy, right? It's, it's hard. It, this feels like overwhelming. Like, how do you build into our children um, just this life uh, to love and serve the Lord? How do, we, how do we make our children to become wise? Well, fortunately, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, give, they do give a couple of thoughts or as a starting point as to how to do this. And, and if you look at the passage, it says, you know, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And it says, you shall talk to them when you sit at your home and when you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise. And so this week I was just trying to think of some sort of easy way to remember those four things, right? And so I came up with a simple mnemonic. Um, I know it's a little cheesy, but hopefully this will help you remember that basically I think what the command is saying is that we should train our children, right? Inside, outside, downtime, uptime, right? Inside, outside, downtime, uptime. So what do we mean by that? Inside, right? When we sit in our house. You know, the Barna Group did a study a few years ago and found that 95% of parents believe that they should be the primary responsibility, they should have the primary responsibility to teach their children about religious beliefs and about the faith, right? So in other words, you know, it makes sense. Children should build into their children the faith and, and teach them about Jesus. But interestingly, the same study found that, um, you know, parents that have kids tend to be the highest attenders of church, but yet, a majority of those parents never talk about faith in their actual homes throughout the week. Now, do you kind of see the disconnect there? Right? All parents believe that they should be the primary, they should have the primary responsibility to teach their children about the faith. But yet, the only thing that parents tend to do is simply take their kids to church on Sunday. And so many of you might be thinking, what's the problem with that? Right? Why is that such a big deal? Uh, really, I think it's an issue of math more than anything else. If I were to sum it up, right? Because even if you went to church every single week, right, and you spent, our kids went to Compass every single week, that's still about four hours of their time. And let's just say you're also active in your small group and your faith group has a kids group every single week. And again, you add another two hours to that, right? And in a month, they might spend at most about 12 hours of time learning about Jesus. Now, those 12 hours, a lot of kids spend more time than that per day in their house, at least certainly in a week. And certainly when your kids go to school, they're going to spend more time than that in their classrooms, aren't they? See, the fact is, is that the only time that our children hear about Jesus is at church. Over time, the other influences are going to supersede anything they might learn here at 10, 14 a.m. every single Sunday. And I know many of you might be thinking, okay, this seems too hard. I don't know what to do. Right? What do I do about this? I like the idea, but I just have no plan. In fact, that was what I was in the first couple of years. I was in that sort of camp for the first couple of years. And so the only suggestion I would give is, is just to do something simple and just start and just build from there. And, and so one of the things that we did, um, this is just, again, just our example. Take it for what it's worth. One of the things that we used to do uh, with our children is to simply teach them the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. They were young. Uh, I was actually surprised at how quickly they're able to memorize uh, large portions of that. And even at ages two or three, just because at that point they didn't, you know, they didn't have the cognitive reasons to be able to pray for themselves. So we just had, had them just pray the Lord's Prayer. We just did that every single day whenever we had a chance and just recite the Ten Commandments. Now that they're getting a little older, um, now they do their own prayers. And, and, and so often what we do now is we'll just read like a short little passage um, from like a, like a devotional Bible. And then we'll just talk about it for just a few minutes. 
You know, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet to exactly what you know what you should do. Uh, in fact, it's kind of it's going to differ from family to family, life stage to life stage, depending upon your d- different environments. But the one suggestion I do make is just to start, right? Just to start, do something simple. Okay, so, do, so, so start to do something inside your home. Secondly, do something outside, uh, where it says, when you walk by the way. The idea here is to talk about, talk about faith when you leave the home as well. Uh, for instance, perhaps when you're on, on the car or in a road trip. I heard of one teenage mother who, who loved driving her teens around and, and their friends because it helped her to get a sense of what was happening in their, in their children's lives and a re- and sense of what's really going on. In fact, this was a time for them to, to really connect and, and talk about some of these deeper things that they normally wouldn't feel comfortable at home with all the other family members there. Right? That, that time in the car sort of became a sanctuary. Um, for our family, it isn't as much of a sanctuary. Uh, like we like we tend to just kind of zone out and just kind of just drive to place to place. Uh, but one of the things we try to do is just you know put on various Christian CDs, and I'm sure many of you do that. Even now, they listen to like uh, a CD for uh, right now. They're doing classical conversation, and so just learning about these various things as they get ready for the fall. Uh, but what, every once in a while, one of the things we did do on road, longer road trips is we even put on full sermons for them, and then we'll just do like a brief little discussion um, as to what they learned about them. Right? But the idea is to try to take advantage of those road times. Okay? So inside, outside. Third, downtime. You know, when you lie down. And the idea here is to take advantage of bedtime. You know, for most of us parents that I talk to, I feel like this is probably the most common time that they try to invest uh, into their spiritual lives of their children. Um, you know, I wish I could say that every moment that we had during that, uh, our day, nightly devotions, you know, there was sort of this kind of God descending from heaven type of moment. But, but that certainly wasn't the case. Right? But every once in a while, you know, we do have a spiritual breakthrough. See, a few months ago, um, right before I went, we went to bed, uh, I asked this girl, I asked my girl sort of a random question. You know, I said, hey, if you could have one wish from God, what would you wish for? And I'm sort of glad the girls went first because I had sort of had this lame answer. So I said, hey, man, if I had my one wish, I wish I'd be the owner of the Chicago White Sox or something like that, <laughs> you know, because I'm from Chicago. So I would love that. But I, I didn't answer first. Actually, my daughter, Anna, answered first. And she said, you know what, Daddy? If I had one wish, I wish that I could see God. I was a little surprised, and I said, well, why did you say that? And I said, because every once in a while when I pray, I sometimes think that God is speaking to me, but I'm not sure it's from God or it's from my own head. So if I could see God, then I would know that it was God himself. And at that point, I, you know, tears started to roll down my eyes. But, but before, I, before I could say anything, my other daughter, Julia, jumped in and said, well, Daddy, Daddy. I wish that I can hear God. And I was asking, well, why do you ask that? Why do you wish to hear from God? It's because every time I pray and we do listening prayer, I never hear anything. But I want God to speak to me as well. Honestly, at that point, I was just a wreck. Because <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And we just had an opportunity. I mean, and Rebecca and I just had an opportunity to minister to them at that moment. Right? And, I, and as I thought about it, I realized that if we didn't build into some of their lives some sort of daily routine as much as possible, if we didn't have this downtime ritual, I just don't think that we would have had an opportunity like that to be able to minister to our kids. Right? And finally, um, uptime, when you rise. The idea here is to take advantage of the mornings. And honestly, for me, this is the hardest time. Um, just because, uh, mainly because I go to work earlier than our kids usually uh, get up for the rest of the day. And, and, and so, um, and also, I'm also not really a morning person. 
But one of the things I do try to do every once in a while, whenever I remember, is as I walk into the office, I just say a little prayer for my wife and for the kids, asking that God would use them for his purposes today. But I do know some families who take advantage of the uptime. Uh, in fact, I, I was talking with someone once that said because of their schedules, um, you know, the breakfast time, the morning time was the one time in the family they would have a family meal. And so that was the time where they would do like devotionals and talk about things of faith, right? And then they would do these devotion discussions every morning. Now, the point of all this is not to say that this is this kind of exhaustive list that you have to do all these things all the time. But I think the point of it is, is that to allow um, building into your children's spiritual lives and into their, their lives so they can be wise, to do that in all facets for life. Let it be sort of a natural extension of what you're doing every single day. Right? So whether you're doing it inside or outside, or downtime or uptime, you know, try to take advantage of those moments throughout the day. But I just realized, too, that, you know, for many of us, you know, if you ever tried to train your child in this way and, and try to teach them to obey their commands, uh, I think you probably already know this is almost an impossible task, isn't it? Frankly, because children have a mind of their own and we can't control them, can we? And I found that out very early, and I'm sure many of you as well. Right? And there will be times as parents that we're going to fail and that we're going to mess up and that we're going to just fall on our face. Right? And there are times that our kids are also going to fail and they're going to mess up and they're going to fall on their face as well. And in these moments, right, this is when we need to remember that we have a Heavenly Father who will never fail and who will never mess up and who will never fall. It says in the book, of Psalms 136.1. It says, Praise the Lord. He is good. Because God's love never fails. Right? And it is this God who loved us so much that we get to call him our Father. You know, as it says in 1 John 3.1, See what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are, isn't it? See, the fact is that we'll never become perfect parents. And even when we mess up, you know, before we try to find the right answers about what we did wrong or, or, or what we could have done differently, see, I think those are moments that maybe the first thing we should do is to turn to Jesus. Right? Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, is that He is the way, and He is the truth, and He is the life, and that no one can ever come to the Father except through Him. You know, I love the way that Tim Keller put it, where it says, you know, that when life's difficult, and sometimes when we look for answers, see, Jesus didn't come to answer life's question, but he came to be the answer. And in those moments, there are times that we need to turn to Jesus. And we realize when we fail, we need him desperately. Now, those are the times that we need to do that. And so church, our goal is not to raise our children to be happy, right, or to make ourselves happy through our children, but rather our goal is to make them wise. And so let's take advantage of every opportunity to train them, you know, whether it's inside our homes or outside as they're traveling, whether it's in our downtimes before we go to bed or before we rise up in our uptime. But just know that Jesus will empower us and ask him to empower us through his spirit and through his love and through his power. Because we know that we can only do it through him and without, and not on our own power. And so with that, I just invite you to close with me in prayer. 
Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much just for the gift of children. The Lord truly is a gift and a treasure in each of our hearts. And we ask, God, that you help us um, to really focus on the right things. Help us, Lord, that there are some of us that maybe we've gone off track or, 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 or maybe building into things that maybe we should, into our children, things that we shouldn't. We just ask, God, that you just uh, maybe correct us and even speak to us right now. And for those of us who are not parents, and, or for those of us who be, perhaps had uh, you know, difficulty even in our parental relationships, Lord, help us to know and remember and truly experience that we do have a Father who won't fail us and who won't fall. He'll never leave us. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.